Welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Andrei Ziadinov. Andrei is a postdoc at Harvard School of Public Health. And uh, he recently published an R package and a paper called LME for QTL, Linear Mixed Models with Flexible Covariance Structure for Genetic Studies of Related Individuals. Andrei, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Roman. Thank you for inviting me. Actually, I looked through your previous podcast and I was really like interested in like a diverse topic you cover in your like bioinformatics podcast. I learned many things and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and, and we didn't have anything, I think, about, uh, well, definitely not about mixed linear models and uh, very little about QTLs. So uh, this is going to be a good addition. Let's talk about yourself. What is your background? Where did you study? What did you study? Yeah, sure. So my basic background is in applied physics and mathematics. I got my bachelor's degree in, from Moscow in Institute of Physics and Technology. My PhD was in biomedical engineering, not too much about genetics, but I got this kind of um, statistical and technical background. And five or seven years ago, I started to work in, uh, in this field, let's say bioinformatics, genetics, and statistical genetics. And uh, after a, a stay in San Pao Hospital in Barcelona, where it was like pretty like uh, clinical studies. So I moved to Harvard, which exactly Harvard School of Public Health. And here uh, I'm in a program of genetic epidemiology and uh, statistical genetics. And here we like have um, method development and also analysis of large scale data available in here within Harvard or like globally. How did you come into bioinformatics? What brought you from uh, applied math and physics to genetics, say? Well, my PhD advisor has this kind of several lines of research. And one that was more like computer science engineering when I was actually trained as a PhD student. And like the second line was like bioinformatics. And uh, in Barcelona, there are many hospitals and like research institutes. And I moved smoothly to this area and... It was like boom of availability of uh, genomic data and any kind of omics data. And like, uh, I was really amazed. I remember I took some courses in at Coursera, this online platform. And like, uh, I started feeling that I know more about biology and maybe I can apply my, let's say, mathematical statistical skills to biomedical genetics problem. And it was pretty successful. So I think I, I was thinking maybe it's like good to keep going. So that's how I appeared here in Harvard. That's awesome. And and so your uh, LME for QTL package, is that your first sort of major contribution to this field? Or uh, what, what did you work on before? Actually, I would say these kind of R packages this was like side projects, because uh, when I started this technical project, I was actually involved in analysis of clinical data in that hospital in Barcelona. And sure, I collaborated with all the people and I provided them uh, statistical, analytical expertise. So we worked together and like most articles published was like application of standard method or like method developed within the lab. And one of that packages was like this LME4 QTL. And yeah. And actually, I finished that, pro this, that project and published the article being here in Harvard. It took like five years to finish it. So uh, I'm not sure it's like a long 
project, but finally it's it's already there and like all the people can use it. People uh, from the field are pretty interested in it. So your package, LME for QTL, it's a package to analyze QTLs, right? So let's let's maybe start with this. What what is a QTL? I guess many many of your listeners heard about like GWAS, which is genome vitalization studies, which was like last ten years really like booming and like uh, it's mostly applicable and like kind of reliable to get new insights on genetic architecture of like diseases and complex traits. So the idea is, uh, uh, you have, if you have a, like clinical studies and you have phenotypes, let's say, can be like a quantitative, like body mass index or like height, or can be a disease status, like uh, having disease or not, like binary data. On the other side, you also can genotype your like individuals, get a, like a single nucleotide polymorphism data. So it's like millions of SNPs. So on, like next, the question is just uh, to do a session study, pick one genetic variant at the time, just test. Basically, it's kind of correlation between your phenotype and genotype and do it so many times you have your genotypes. And then you can just see what the contribution of uh, uh, top genotypes or, or like generally like uh, what look like the shape of uh, variation of phenotype uh, affected by genotypes. And uh, when we say QTL, is, uh, abbreviation stands for uh, quantitative trail uh, locus. So it means a particular genetic marker in the genome that has an effect on uh, QTL. Maybe 20 years ago, uh, genetic studies, genetic station studies were mostly done in families because they have this kind of different study design. And we, they, did, they still didn't have access uh, to this large scale uh, and high resolution genotyping arrays. So they just took uh, what's called microsatellites, which was like hundreds of genetic markers, and they did linkage studies. So I guess this QTL notation came from that times. And like last 10 years, um, now people do genetication studies, GWAS, but still QTL is the same idea that you uh, looking for particular sites of genomes that have something to do with your phenotype. Let's start with the just a simple linear model. How could we apply a simple linear model to to a GWAS study? Yeah, in a nutshell, you have a, like a correlation coefficient like between genotype and phenotype, and you can perform a statistical test and get a p-value. If you do it for like millions of SNPs, you have like many p-values, and so you face with a problem of multiple testing. And so you apply typically Bonferroni threshold, and if you have enough sample size, so your study is well powered, and you can actually observe some peaks. Which and if you make a plot where on the x-axis you put like genomic position, on the y-axis you put like log 10 p-values, so you have kind of Manhattan plot. That's what you can finally get. But linear models, it's a good thing because you can add covariates. Let's say com complex diseases are affected by environmental clinical factors and as well as genotypes. So you likely want to take into account the effect of age, uh, gender, like many other like related covariates. So linear models are good for that. And you can also, like if you have binary outcome or even like some count data, you can uh, use uh, generalized linear uh, models and you still can perform the job of this association study. So this is like uh, linear models, but what people observe that when they like early started with GWAS that you can have inflated statistics, meaning that uh, 
you can be too optimistic and uh, they were thinking how to deal with that and uh, you, ha you can have some structure in the data if you have homogeneous data from one particular location and there is no like uh, family relatedness they're all independent linear model models will likely be the good choice if you have some let's say even within europe you have like uh, some people from the south some let's say spain other group of people from france so you have some population structure and it's part of the field of population genetics and um, people were thinking how to address this uh, problem because if you perform a test without uh, controlling for this population structure, you will likely find SNP, let's say, that distinguish like uh, eye color between Spani Spanish and French people and not these kind of genetic variants associated with the disease. So there are many methods to address this uh, to model this population structure, and one of them is mixed models. Right, so in a simple linear model, you would include as your covariates, as your variables, you would include both things like age and sex and, uh, you know, height or whatever, and uh, you would also include the, the genotypes, right? So how does that part work? How do you incorporate your genotyping data into a linear model? Yeah, so uh, as I said, you pick one genotype variable at a time. So and let's say you have like B allelic variant. You can code, convert these labels to numbers. Let's say if you follow this additive model, you will end up with 0, 1, and 2, meaning like the number of a minimal allele in a genotype of a particular person. So in this way, for every SNP, you have a, a vector of the length of the number of your individuals in the study. And like each entry in this vector is 0, 1, or 2. This is your quantitative predictor to test. And you just uh, include this vector of genetic variant into a model, like a new predictor, fit the model, see the like effect sizes and the error. So you can compute a test statistic, which is like, uh, can be t-test or anyway, it's, uh, it's uh, pretty similar. And so you derive a p-value. Uh, so you would fit this uh, linear model for every single SNP that right. you genotype. Right. Yeah. And uh, the same issue applies with the uh, multiple testing. So you still have to apply the correction to the resulting p-values. Yeah. So people several years ago already established a number of, let's say, independent uh, genetic markers because uh, genetic markers close in location, physical locations, they kind of have correlation structure. So they're not independent. And like it's estimated that you have a, a million of independent markers. And usually it's not like uh, you can genotype like 10 millions of SNPs, but finally you end up correcting for 1 million because that's like give you a bond for any threshold, which is 5, 10 minus 8, I guess. is a kind of standard threshold and when you consider for multiple testing. And uh, I guess if you have not a biallelic SNP, but when, when you have more than two alleles, you could introduce this as uh, separate covariates. So you'd have a covariate for uh, allele 1 and for allele 2 as compared to, let's say, allele 3 as a baseline? Yeah, actually, I've never uh, worked with a uh, 3-allelic or something because, like, for B-allelic and for human traits, it's well established that additive model is a good, let's say, transformation from your genetic data to quantitative variable. And, like, even for B-allelic, you can have, in addition to additive coding, you can have some dominance. So everything which is violates this like additive model, like linear one, and you can include this. But what happened in human genetics is that people know that uh, contribution of this dominance effect of like SNPs, a single SNP or like 
more or less genome wide is really a way less than uh, contribution of additive effects. So people just do additive coding and uh, in most cases and just uh, perform the GWAS in these settings. Right. So, so an additive effect is when the jump from zero to one of the minor allele brings the same effect as the jump from one to two. Yeah, you're right. So this is like kind of model. If this is not true for some, imagine extreme cases. So then you can have an option to include dominance effect and you likely find a particular genetic variant that uh, manifests this kind of nonlinear like dominant effect. Yeah, but in most of the cases, you simplify and uh, in real life, additive model works pretty well. You mentioned that if we don't account for a population structure, so people in Spain and people in France and uh, people in Spain are similar to one another and people in France are similar to one another. And so we, if we don't account for that in our simple linear models, then uh, we'll, we'll run into problems. So what, what kind of problems? You mentioned we might find a spurious locus that would account for the eye color. So why exactly and how exactly would that happen? And why wouldn't we find the true loci that account for the eye color? Yeah, so I would say going to like basic linear model that imagine that you have, forget about genetic, and you have some like uh, outcome you want to model. And for sure, if there is some uh, important covariate you don't include in your modeling, so you just uh, having like uh, some, you can get some biased estimates or biased effects of data you have available in measure it in your, in your data set. So this is something particularly applying to kind of uh, uh, linear models in genetics. If you know there is population structure and you don't account for it, so you will likely get something uh, uh, which is far from the true laws of this phenotype, that shapes this phenotype. And I guess when I say this kind of eye color, I remember in the course I took in this course there, it was a example when like uh, a person couldn't publish his article about GWAS results because like in a good journal and they suggested just you should to do something with your population structure and he didn't took this advice and published in a like a low impact journal but still it kind of resulted were very suspicious. So I'm curious would it help if instead of running a linear model for each separate SNP what if we included all the SNPs and then more important ones would uh, get higher coefficients than less important ones? Ah, you mean instead of including one SNP at a time, you put everything, all SNPs, right? Yeah, so that uh, those SNPs that uh, are just correlated by accident, presumably they would have a weaker effect than those yeah. that are truly causal. Yeah, actually, I, I should explain that people really do something similar. So if you have like some individuals and it can be some structure on them or not, you don't know. And the way to model it is to construct so-called genetic relationship matrices where you use your genotype data and compute uh, based on this genotype data, which are usually centered and scaled. So you compute the relationship matrix. And this matrix appears to model very well uh, how close a given pair of individuals based on this genetic population structure. And uh, exactly like mixed model, the framework allows you to include uh, a random effect with this uh, variance-covariance matrix, which is like GRM. And that helps you to model the global effect of all SNP shaping like uh, populations and like include it, let's say, not like the covariate, but the random effect, but still you control for it. And then you are safe to like adding SNP at a time 
in the presence of this genetic collection matrix and you just testing and you can like collect your p-values and later on people usually do this quantile quantile plot because you expect a uniform distribution of your p-values because like it's a hypothesis free study this is the way people currently perform GWAS studies yeah I, I like how you segue into mixed linear models okay so <laughs> tell us about them the things probably that we want to to start with are what are these uh, random effects and, and mixed effects as opposed to fixed effects what what do these all words mean? Yeah. So if you we do a step back and think about linear models, we have like outcome predictors and uh, all these beta coefficients are like kind of fixed effects. So it's like um, you you don't assume any distribution on that. And at the same time, with the simple linear models, you have a residual term, right? Which actually it's a random effect. So you just assume that it's a effect that distributed, uh, which is called IID, identically along individuals. And like it's something that typically refers to a noise term, but actually it's like random effect of uh, normal which has a normal distribution. And once imagine you have some, uh, let's say you collect data from different medical centers, right? And you likely know that uh, there is some effect of this medical center, but it's not kind of causal. It's just some uh, people are different based on whether they belong to one medical center or another. And you can include this as a random effect and just based on this grouping matrix. And that helps to take into account this kind of randomness due to, let's say, grouping center and run linear mix model and do kind of this accurate modeling. In terms of uh, genetic studies, you know, if you model, let's say, families or population-based studies, you know there is some genetic relationship between given pairs of individuals. And again, you can collect the genotype data and compute this kind of relationship matrix. And yeah, these random effects actually can be like kind of genetic, what I said, or can be, let's say, grouping effect, or can be, uh, imagine you have heterostidacity effect, meaning that there is some difference in accuracy you collect data. Imagine like you have like two genotyping arrays, and each one can have uh, good quality and low quality, and maybe errors are not equally distributed, so you should just precisely model this kind of uh, to noise terms. And like, again, mixed models are a good instrument, like good framework to do that. So you mentioned this example where you have two medical centers and uh, you yep. assume that there might be some difference due to the difference in, in medical centers. How is a mixed linear model different from including this medical center as just another covariate in your simple fixed effects linear model? Yeah, it's a very good question because uh, I guess in most of the publication, people, as you said, include the covariate. So uh, a short answer that for the purpose of testing for session for a given SNP, let's say, so it's equivalent because somehow the variance uh, due to, the medi let's say, medical centers, you can model equivalently by one way or another or the other. But uh, I, I guess if you're interested in, let's say, be more precise in quantifying the effect of building one center or another. So this kind of random effects, this, they have kind of shrinkage. So let's say you have like uh, five centers, right? And if you include the covariate, you will have four coefficients. You should then call like dummy variables and you have like a baseline and like base. And then you have like what's like additive effect of belonging to one group compared to the baseline and then to the third group and to the so, so on. So we have like four coefficients. And if you 
model as a random effect, you still will have five, uh, let's say, effect sizes. But in this case, they will you explicitly assume uh, that these effect sizes have a normal distribution, and it will be a kind of uh, uh, more, let's say, plausible uh, assumption that uh, if you model as a fixed effect, you might have not enough data to model these strong assumptions that they're all independent. And in most cases, you will have larger magnitude of these uh, effect sizes if you model as fixed effects. But as a random effect, you will have kind of shrinkage. And this is kind of quantitative differences. Yeah, th this is a very good point. So how does this then relate to uh, Bayesian linear models? Because this sounds like just a good Bayesian practice where you put priors on your parameters that you try to estimate. So is this just a special case of a Bayesian li linear model? Well, yeah, we know that like, there is a link between Bayesian and like frequent statistics, right? Yeah, in this particular case, there is a link. Because like if I guess a prior distribution for fixed effect is kind of uniform, right? Or, or you could even put, you know, uh, priors on your fixed effects. It's just a good practice because there, there too you have some prior assumptions. Yes, I'm not uh, very proficient in Bayesian modeling, but as far as I remember, if you put, if you try to match like your frequent approach, like running linear models or, or any more complex model, and like Bayesian approach, the way to get the same results uh, for linear model and like fixed effects is to put, I guess, uniform prior on fixed effects. So and you will right, end right. up with the same same results. And yeah, in, in case of uh, random effects and linear in, term, in framework of linear mixed models, so you explicitly say that you distribution of your effects, let's say due to the center or like any other grouping factor, so it's kind of uh, normally distributed. And knowing this, so you can put it all together, actually, like all random effects are normally distributed, and that gives you like your phenotype or your outcome you want is actually like multivariate normal. So we can apply maximum likelihood, uh, build, construct this maximum li likelihood function and just optimize and like get estimates of this kind of contribution of random effects. Yeah, so to summarize, random effects differ from fixed effects in that uh, first they kind of have priors on them in this frequentist setting. And uh, the second, I guess, the, the difference is that you don't really get from the model the estimate of the random effects. So random effects are supposed to be the effects you're not directly interested in. Uh, well, one thing you get uh, estimates of your random effect, which are uh, conditional on your kind of uh, structure due to fixed effect, because it's kind of uh, conditional distribution. So it, it's one point, and that, yeah, it's something like uh, not true estimates of random effects. In this sense, you're right. But still, using this kind of uh, conditional estimates, you people like do uh, use this estimation of effect sizes to do kind of prediction. I guess in like agricultural science, yeah, they have this inbred species, and they still like feed models, estimate this random effect, genetic random effect, and build prediction models based on this kind of uh, even kernels or this kind of more like genetic relation matrix. So I would say more, they develop these prediction techniques based on estimation of random effects, maybe, I don't know, many years ago than like in human genetics, they start to apply this method. So in your example that you gave, if you have five medical centers and you want to model them using random effects, in that case, you would have uh, four random effects? right, in, in addition to the fixed effects? Well, you will have five, actually. 
Yeah, because like in, if you model as a fixed effect, you have intercepts that which is kind of included is one of the effect of center. Right, right. And then if you want to apply this model to genotypes, then uh, you would have to include one million of uh, random effects, which is clearly wouldn't work. Uh, so how how do you apply these mixed models to GWAS? Yeah, when you estimate this random effect, you model in distribution, right? So you model in distribution of either given like five or million of uh, distinct, let's say, SNPs or any kind of grouping. So and you what you estimate, you you like first you assume this is like normal distribution, right? So you know like normal distribution with mean zero and some variance. So what you get for every uh, random for random effect, either it's million of SNPs or five medical centers, you get you get this uh, uh, sigma parameter, uh, standard uh, yeah like variance. And once you get it, so you can just uh, get a good modeling of your variance of your phenotype, which depends on like grouping factors or genetic effect. That's the way you get estimation of random effect. Yeah, this this is something I wanted to clarify because in uh, mixed models, there are two types of covariance matrices that can be considered. So you can either consider the covariance matrix of your random effects because they are modeled as a multivariate normal distribution. Or you could consider the covariance matrix of the samples themselves. And uh, if you have the covariance matrix of your uh, random effects, and uh, then if you know which samples uh, are affected by which effects, then you can come up with from that presumably smaller covariance matrix to this bigger covariance matrix that covers all of your samples, right? Is, is that a right way to think about this? I, I kind of guessing what you're asking, though, so let me try to give you... Imagine like that example, you have like a clinical study, you collected like a phenotype and genotype from these kind of silent individuals, and you have like five medical centers, right? So when you include like two random effects, which one is due to medical centers and the second due to like genetic uh, genetic data, and so in kind of first in the first term you will get five by five covariance matrix because you have like five groups of individuals right because of, due to five medical centers. But in the case of a genetic random effect, so you your covariance matrix will be like uh, one this number of individuals like what I said like one thousand by one thousand because you are interested in modeling like each pair of individuals because you know like let's say like in uh, some particular case if you have like families right you have uh, parents and ch their children so for sure there is some like uh, well people know like how they uh, the proportion of genetic variants they share answering your question you have depending on whether you model grouping to the center or like genetic effect which is like individual level similarity matrix so you'll get different different size of covariance matrices yes and and uh, not just different size but uh to, to different types of covariance matrices, right? If it was a single way, then in the second case, you would get a million by million covariance matrix that would describe your uh, individual SNPs, but that's not what you want. Yeah, here, what you're modeling, you're right, you like your size of covariance matrix, like number of individuals and not number of SNPs. You just use all your genotype data to estimate this per, uh, individual level relationship in case of like genetic similarities. And so 
I'm guessing that this is related to what you did in your package, right? So you, you had to implement this second way of uh, parameterizing a mixed model? Yeah, since you notice that like this R package is an extension of an R, another R package, which is called Illumi4, which is relatively widely used in not only genetics field, but in many, like psychology or like uh, ecology and many other fields. So, and what I wanted to do with that package, just to make use of all infrastructure created for like last 15 years or something like that, and uh, apply to like genetic studies. But it happened that uh, it was not possible to add some like custom covariance matrix because for when we do genetic studies, you have genotype data, you construct this genetic similarity matrix and you just want to include them as a in a, in a mixed model. But what I encountered that uh, ILMI4 da- didn't allow you to do that like that time. And I guess like with the last version that appeared like a week ago, they 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 don't support this kind of functionality. And since in genetic studies, including a custom covariance matrix is, is really like a common thing to do. So I was thinking just to to do some kind of coding and just see how it, it was implemented, maybe implement some additional uh, matrix operations for for do that for doing that. And finally it was useful for me and like uh, for all other people that are doing this kind of similar studies. So when you fit a uh, mixed linear model, you have to do several things. So for example, this uh, LME4 package, it has to estimate the fixed effects, the random effects, and the the, the variance or, or uh, the covariance or the random effects, right? And uh, when you supply your own covariance matrix, you're essentially reducing the amount of work that it has to do because you're saying, well, don't bother estimating the covariance matrix because I think I know what it is exactly. Yeah, you're right. I guess you're getting the point that if you want the mixed model framework estimate every particular pairwise like entry in covariance matrix as well as like contribution to every, uh, let's say, random effect with its covariance matrix, it's a very hard job. So what like a traditional way to do that is to uh, say that I know the structure of my random effects. Let's say that can be like... A, uh, genetic relationship matrix that you estimated using genetic data, or if you know there is five centers, you say, oh, there is only five centers. So first step of this running linear mix model is to estimate what is called uh, uh, variance components, and in particular, this kind of, you encode this uh, covariance structure as a function of really few parameters, which is like basically this sigma squared, or it can be correlation coefficients. So, and uh, usually, like, in the simplest case, you have like, I don't know, two to five, this kind of sigma squared. And the first step is to estimate this like sigma squared, which is again, variance component. And then once you know that conditional on true uh, parameters, so you can estimate fixed effect. And usually it's a way simpler case. And most of the time you spend on estimating variance component, which is involves inverting some matrix, actually variance covariance matrix of your outcome you're modeling. The complexity is cubic on the sample size. And that's why, like, running linear mixed model is a way you spend a, a way more time than like linear models. How did you convince LMU4 to to do less work? If it didn't have an option to specify this covariance matrix, it could only estimate it. How did you manage to use that package and supply your own covariance matrix? 
I guess it's a really first equation of, or, or maybe the only equation in in the in the article. But you, which uh, uh, this kind of kind of standard trick, which is I guess called decorrelation in general. But uh, the thing is that you can, if you have a custom covariance matrix, you can you can apply Cholesky decomposition, or in some a different case like uh, eigenvalue decomposition, and represent as a uh, product of matrix and its transpose matrix, and that really helps to to stick to definition of uh, random effect that is used inside LME4. Yeah, actually, it was a kind of trick, and originally it was suggested by actually authors of LME4, and I know that uh, in many publications some people just use this kind of custom code. So they never, they just did once for their project, didn't share with anybody and like uh, implemented this kind of uh, necessary step of including custom covariance matrix. And I was hoping like first year what, when somebody will like, will, would do that and, or like official release of LME4 will finally like implement this because it was in to-do list, but it <laughs> it didn't happen that time. And like slowly we start using our like custom code to do that uh, uh, within our group, and later on we created a package again, like to make it more serious uh, software package with option to like uh, testing, adding more stuff, sharing with other people. Yeah, and finally it ended up as a public package that now anybody can use it. So I get how you use uh, this decorrelation to transform the covariance matrix. So whereas before you knew it was some matrix, right, and you apply this trick. And now you know that the covariance matrix of the random effect is, I guess, the identity matrix. Uh, but how do you convince LME4, which is designed to estimate that matrix, not to do that and to skip that part and just to assume that the random effects are uncorrelated? Are you calling like the low-level functions yourself and in this way you're avoiding the step where it estimates the, the covariance matrix? Yeah, it's, I would say it's a reformulation of covariance matrix. And uh, yeah, you're right that uh, what I did instead of calling the main function of LME4, I just uh, do it in four steps. Like they suggested to do that. And in some particular place, I just uh, made this kind of uh, uh, reformulation and useful for like if you have some a given custom covariance, covariance matrix. So what if you have... Uh, these correlations induced by uh, genotypes, but also you have these five different medical centers, right? How would you combine those two together? Because if you have genotypes, then you need to specify the whole covariance matrix and skip the step where it estimates the covariance. But if you have the medical centers, then uh, you would want it to estimate the correlations between the medical centers. But how how can you do those both things together? Well, you just include two random effects, right? Like the model is itself saying that like random effects are independent, so you can just sum up variance, right? So if you just variance of two terms, it's a sum of its two variances. So and basically you assume that one term due to medical center and another term due to like genetic relationship are independent. So and you can just uh, put two two components, two random effects. So it's like called multi-component model. But still, if you suspect there is some correlation, I guess you can you can do that. In notation of ilmi 4 it's called like random slope, 
or you can even introduce a correlation between different components of covariance. So even if they are not correlated, but I think you said that um, you estimate the whole covariance matrix and then just skip that step, right? So is it possible, like with your package, with the uh, LME for QTL, is that possible to ask it also to estimate some component of, of the covariance matrix? Yeah, sure. Like you can do it either in LME4, if you have like, let's say, three grouping effects and three other effects, or you can do it with ilmi 4 QTL where one of the effects can be like defined by custom covariance. Your variance covariance matrix of your, let's say, outcome is kind of, let's say, three or several components that you just sum up because they're like kind of independent. And this, this is the way you, you can model like variance covariance matrix of your outcome, which is multivariate normal distribution. You can easily do it kind of decomposition of your, let's say, structure and split it into like related to let's say one grouping, which is medical center, and another, which is like genetic relationship. And uh, another feature of uh, LME for QTL that you advertise is something called restrictions on model parameters. So could you explain what that is? Well, in my case, we have exactly multi-component models and we have, let's say, three parameters and the way, and we were interested to test one of them. And the idea is the classical way in statistics to do that is just to fit two models, right? One is when you estimate three parameters and you have, let's say, in simplest case, three degree of freedoms. And the other case, if you if you restrict parameter for your interest to, let's say, null value, which is, say, zero, so, like, there is no variance due to this kind of component, and so you are restricting one of the three parameters to, let's say, value zero, and the other two are, like, free, you estimate, fit, fit again the second model, and the way to derive a statistical test is just to compare two models, take their likelihood, perform likelihood ratio test, and you get a p-value. So that just short story why I needed to implement these uh, uh, restrictions on model parameters. And which parameters do you restrict? So in my case, the model was modeling like a quantitative phenotype for like my my data set, and in that data set, clinical data, I had like males and females, and you what you you might think that there is some difference in, let's say, genetic architecture of this trait between two genders. So, and you might have one, like, say, variance sigma squared contribution for males and another for females, and you might also have some correlation coefficient. So in this case, you have three parameters to estimate, and you just include them. But once you include it, in fitted that model, this kind of model is complex one, and you need to have a good a sense whether it's worth to do that and maybe just a simple model with one single parameter is a better way to model your data. So what exactly what you do is just to uh, compare your models. You just do kind of restriction model parameters, take this test, and you can quantitatively say whether complex model is better, like sufficiently better to replace a simple model. So in your case, was including extra parameter worth it? No. In my case, another reflection on this kind of dominance and additive uh, modeling of genetic variants. In my case, doing a more complex uh, assumption of genetic structure, there is some difference between males and females. It's worth trying, but usually people end up with negative results. So in my case, it was uh, the same answer. that I couldn't get any enough statistical significance to claim that there is some difference. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about the study that you talk about in the paper. It's called GAIT2. Yep. A genetic analysis of idiopathic thrombophilia. 
so what was the uh, goal of that study? So that study was a clinical study. Clinical data were collected in Spanish families, uh, 35 Spanish families. Uh, it was about, around 900 individuals. And these families were recruited uh, with a proband of a person who had uh, idiopathic thrombophilia. And uh, this disease is called venous thrombosis. And it, something happened with your blood clotting process. I guess the prevalence is relatively low, which is below 1%. But still, there is like uh, people suffering from it. And it's a very a disease uh, which pre- was previously shown has like 80% of irritability, meaning that there is a good proportion of genetic contribution. And the project aimed to collect that data in families and try to find new uh, genetic loci like QTAs that like affect the risk of the diseases. Project was done in San Paulo Hospital in Barcelona. The group that had a wide experience, like uh, I would say, fifteen or twenty years, MDs, uh, biochemists, uh, uh, many people in the laboratory that they were able to measure something like five hundred phenotypes for this particular study. A vast volume of uh, of data, like diverse data, typical data analysis problem. What the how to make the best use of it? When you measure multiple phenotypes. How do you combine them? How do you fit this model? Do you fit one model per phenotype? Or is there any advantage to somehow grouping them and analyzing them together? Yeah, it's a very good question because the traditional way is to, as you said, is to model every single phenotype like separately. And I guess it what we did, but people try to combine and do what is called multi-trade session studies. And there is also an active development in this field and even like in in my one of my current projects try to develop a robust method to to do this kind of analysis yeah usually it it, it reflects how like two given phenotypes are genetically related when you say genetically related it means uh, that they can share some uh, risk loci or QTLs that like uh, mm, are common uh, between given pairs so you can include more than two phenotypes and try to do that and actually, when you do multi-trait analysis, your typical null hypothesis is a given SNP has no effect for all phenotypes, which is kind of uh, a different, more relaxed one. And once you find a, a loci, a QTL, which is affect your multi-trait setting, has a, some like significant p-value. So you, you cannot say which one of the phenotypes is affected. So you can say maybe it's affected two or three, or like a, a some portion. So it's kind of, I would say, an additional analysis, kind of complement to single trait uh, GWAS, but still you can get like insights on genetics of, let's say, a particular disease, and but measured through different phenotypes, which have a special name, which is called intermediate phenotype, and like this way, how people try to enrich their data in just clinical setting, because a binary outcome zero or one affected or, not, or like control, so maybe it's like a simplification, and it's kind of like the final stage of, of the disease. But here you can consider many phenotypes and even modeling them, so you can just do a better job. One detail of that study I found interesting that you analyzed whole families and families had, I think, at least three generations. Yeah. Um, why was that important? Why was it insufficient to have some cases and some controls just drawn randomly from the population? Yeah, so there is like this kind of family-based uh, clinical study design. So it was widely used, let's say, 10 years ago, like 
it was like a original study design. And uh, the idea that uh, you can find a particular variant which is caused the diseases and it's enriched within a given family. So, and um, uh, collecting data in families, you have a higher chance to pick this particular variant. And uh, the problem that the current problem of this family study design is that you can you are very limited because it's, ha- it's very hard to recruit. So, if you just see with the sample size of this gate two study, it's only below than one thousand individuals. And on the other side, if you think about what you said, population-based approach, you can collect more data, let's say hundreds of thousands of individuals, or even like approaching to millions of individuals. So and for sure, like the sample size is like order of magnitude difference. And so uh, the, your statistical power to detect a variant, it depends heavily depends on the sample size. And so like most discoveries were done in like this large scale uh, studies, which is population-based. Still, family-based design are kind of useful, and you can see different kinds of specific effect, which is something like enriched rare variants or parent-of-origin effects, but they, I would say they're kind of secondary effect. Mainly, people just do, on the population-based level, uh, take uh, data from as much individuals as they can, and just they find this strong effect due to large sample size. So you mentioned some uh, GWASs with uh, large sample sizes, yeah. uh, up to a million. Uh, if you were to analyze this, uh, do you think uh, LME4 or LME4QTL would do that? So you'd have like a million by million covariance matrix? Yeah, actually, it's a good question. And people who come to use my package in the GitHub, not to have, but a good portion of questions about the, the program goes very slow. And uh, actually, the answer is that uh, my package is based on sparse matrix method that uh, implicitly assumes some sparseness on your covariance matrix. And this is like due to implementation of Illumi4 that they basically based on, uh, let's say, sparse random effects. In genetic studies, if you have families, I guess in the gate 2 study, you have uh, only, if you consider this 1000 by 1000 covariance matrix, two per, only 2% of entries are like filled by some numbers. 98% are zeros. Still, whenever the sample size is pretty like if you run sparse matrix, linear algebra methods, it's very efficient. And on the other side, like uh, most data available, they are population-based. And like when some users try to plug in uh, covariance matrices, which thousands of individuals, so it's very computationally expensive because you just use only four cutel package with originally thought for sparse matrices. And that's essentially not true for kind of dense matrices. I would say like there are many other tools, that not only my package, but people can use it. But that's a limitation of a clear limitation of Ilmi Fokutel. Yeah, and uh, even in your study, you sort of cheated, right? In order to get the sparse matrix, because you have all the genotypes, you could still correlate genotypes across families. Yeah, and get at least some some correlation, right? It would be non-zero but you specifically didn't do that to induce a sparse matrix? Yeah, the thing is that uh, when once you have families, long time ago, people already know their like, kinship coefficients. Uh, imagine if you have a nuclear family with two parents and children. If you consider a single parent and a child, they share 50% of their genes, of their genomes. So like the similarity is 0.5. And again, among children, they also have 0.5. And if you go further, like, let's say, grandparents and, like, any kind of family relationship, so you can put theoretically computed number, which is, like, this kinship coefficient. And that's why it was not cheating. It was just to make use of 
this information that this family and uh, you just uh, plug in the true kinship coefficient. Again, you can use genetic data just to compute this. And I guess we did it and you just see that you mostly replicate this kind of uh, non-zero uh, entries and where you have like zero entries in like theoretical covariance matrix, you have some noise due to just finite sample size if you estimate uh, using genotype data. Sure, but maybe some of the recruited families were also related, like two families enrolled in the study, and they are in fact related because they have a common grand-grandfather who already died, Yeah. right? And you don't know about that relationship, but it is there. So in your case, your covariance matrix, where you assume those are zeros, those would be non-zero. So the admittedly smaller numbers. Yeah, yeah, it's a a good point, but I suspect it's like a negligible effect, but it might exist, you're right. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? Uh, Well, I feel it like our broadcast session was pretty technical and something like mixed model might be complex if you never try to implement themselves. So at least my message would be that the package is ready to use and this ILMI for people and generally like people who developed our statistical software as they make it easy to run like your own models. And I should say that based on like feedback from people who use my package, so they they come from different fields. So and if you feel there is you need some mixed model modeling, you have not only my tool but any other tools available even even in R. So I hope if you play with your own data, you will not get bored with this technical explanation that we talked about. Is there a data set that if if someone doesn't have their own data, is there a public data set one could play with? The time I was developing my package, I really wanted that data set to appear. I couldn't find it. For example, you can just simulate data for yourself. But if you're really interested in real data, I guess there is some clinical studies that you can apply for like access to this, I guess is Fahingham study, which has happened here in the, in Massachusetts. So you can just uh, contact with uh, people who like responsible for that study and get access to data. But it's not publicly developed. You need to write an application form. And uh, if somebody of you all listeners like aware of this kind of package, so I will be happy to put a link on a web page and just maybe did some simple analysis with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool, Andre. Thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.